First of all, before we begin, I'd like to welcome Sheikh Chad, Sheikh Chad Earl, inshallah, over here, you can raise your hand, we actually should have a chair for you up here, but Sheikh Chad is here with his family, Maryam and their children, mashallah, and uh, we're honored to have them, Sheikh Chad is an Azhari, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala help him and me to be actual Azharis, inshallah. He is more so than I am. But inshallah, may Allah give us all tawfiq. Alright, so we left off on hadith number six. We transitioned to this book called The Prophet as a Teacher. I'll call it The Prophet as a Teacher. The English translation says Muhammad the Perfect Teacher. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In Arabic it's called Rasul al-Mu'allim. The Prophet as a teacher, or the Prophet the teacher. Uh, you could translate it, I guess, different ways, but probably more accurately, the Prophet the teacher. Um, by Shaykh Abdul Fatah Abu Ghidda, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, wa Nafarallahu. Wa iyaahu wa yarumi fi darin amin. So we're on hadith number six. Bukhari and Muslim narrate on the authority of Malik ibn Huwayd, who we went to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when we were young men of about the same age. Remained in his company for 20 days. Rasulullah was extremely merciful and compassionate. When he thought we were longing to go back to our families, he asked us about those whom we had left behind. And we informed him. He said, go back to your families and remain with them. Teach them and command them. Offer salah as you saw me offering salah. When it is the time of salah, one of you should give the call to salah, meaning the prayer. And the eldest of you should lead the prayer. And the eldest of you should lead the prayer. I'm going to read what Shaykh Abdul Fatah says. There's a lot in this hadith. SubhanAllah, it's a very beautiful hadith. So uh, just to kind of summarize it. What is this Sahabi saying? Sahabi is saying, we went as a group, kind of like a delegation of young people. We went to the Prophet Wasallam. We stayed with him. And as we stayed with him, at some point, basically along this stay, says we stayed for 20 days, the Prophet Wasallam started to sense that um, that we missed our families so he started to ask to ask us and talk to us about the ones that we had left behind and kind of you know check in with them so to speak and then it came time for them to go uh, he told them go back to your families and stay with them and when you go back to them teach them what you learned from here and lead them in the prayer the way that you saw me lead the prayer and the oldest of you should lead the prayer the oldest of you should lead the prayer. Okay, so let's see what Sheikh Abdul Fatah says and then we'll say some more. Maybe. Uh, number one, it is meritorious for a group of youth to go to a scholar in order to gain knowledge and an understanding of the religion from him or her. They should remain in his or her company for a period of time so that they may observe their ways, habits, and practices. This will illumine their intellects, enable them to acquire knowledge and learn to practice upon it. The knowledge so acquired will be more readily understood and acceptable to them, as was the case with the Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhu. 
So uh, first is that these young people, they should learn. And uh, one of the things that is notable here is that they go to learn. First of all, there's no barrier, right? They're old enough to understand, they can go and learn. As long as they're old enough to understand, they can go and learn. And they, s they spend time with the Prophet وسلم, and he teaches them what they need to know, right? And he leads them in the prayer and they see the prayer and he indicates to them how to do this. And they watch him, وسلم, okay? They stay in the masjid, they stay around the Prophet وسلم, they stay with the senior sahaba, the companions of the Prophet وسلم, and in observing that, they observe then what to do. It's actually really profound. If you think about it, it's really profound. Because someone could read book after book after book after book after book, and you send them to their community, and they don't know what to do. They don't know how to serve the people, they don't know how to talk to the people, they don't know how to interact with people, they don't know how to do what they're supposed to do. That's one, actually one of the challenges of being an imam in America, is that ideally, being an imam would be kind of similar to being a doctor. Whereas when you try, when you train to become a doctor, right, you um, you do your medical school, you do some rotations, and then what do you do? You do your residency, right? You don't just like open up a practice. You you go and you do your residency, and you you spend time under other people. And when you go to apply for jobs later on and stuff, they're going to ask you who you did your residency under. It's going to matter to them, you know. Oh, you did it here, you did it there, that's very prestigious, that's less prestigious, this person's, it's going to be known, right? And then after that, they can go and they can start to uh, be practitioners of their own, right? Uh, what many of us have faced in our communities is that we go and we study, and you end up, you come back and you just serve. But you don't have always the chance to serve under someone who's more senior. So, uh, you know, I remember one of, one of our dear classmate Sheikh Arsalan Haq Allah preserve him and bless him that when we were talking about what to do when we go back his plan was very simple and mashallah you know I've said it before but maybe some people didn't hear this before is that just because everyone graduated in the same class doesn't mean that they're the same okay so like for example we had people in our class who were already shuyukh when they came to Azhar like Sheikh Tana Allah Allah preserve him Sheikh Tana Allah, when he came, he had already finished his Alam program in Bangladesh. So he's already a scholar. He came to Azhar because he wants to study in Azhar. So we graduated the same program. Are we the same? Of course not, right? So Sheikh Arsalan, mashallah, was, he graduated in the same year as people like myself, but he was more senior. <coughs> his plan was very simple. His plan was, I'm going to go wherever Sheikh Mukhtar is. Sheikh Mukhtar Maghrawi, Hafidahullah. You know, he knew him from before he went to study, and he maintained relationship with him while he was studying. And when you go back, and you know, his wife had grown up with him and stuff like that. So like, wherever Sheikh Mukhtar is, I'm going to where Sheikh Mukhtar is. So wherever Sheikh Mukhtar was in upstate New York, he found an imam job in upstate New York. He was able, it wasn't, I don't know if it was the same masjid or not, but they were close enough that they could be together, right? Then Sheikh Mukhtar moved to Dallas. So Sheikh Arsalan got a job in Dallas, <laughs> he became an imam in Dallas, you know, and he got another job there, and then Sheikh Mukhtar moved again, but he remained. The point is, he was able to get that experience, right? So these people, they come to the Prophet they send them, these young people, they stay with them a short amount of time, <coughs> and uh, they get in that amount of time, 
so much, right? They get so much. They get to watch every day. How is the Prophet ﷺ dealing with his people? How is Abu Bakr dealing with the people? How is Omar dealing with, not just the Prophet ﷺ, Al-Uthman and Ali, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud. I mean, they're going to see, he's going to see everyone. You see how they dealt with the people, how they interacted with them, so on and so forth. And then he says, when you go back to your people, then you can teach them, spend time with them. And you'll be in that position to do so. So what Shaykh Abu Fatah said, Allah So they should remain in his company for a period of time so that they may observe his ways, habits, and practices. And this will illumine their intellects and enable them to acquire knowledge and learn to practice it. So it gives them the foundation that they need. Um, uh, by the way, sometimes we call the middle section of the space like the family seating. You know, like if you come with your family, you want to sit with your family. It's okay, sit with your family. If you come with your family, you don't want to sit with your family for whatever reason. It could be any number of reasons. Don't sit with your family. It's okay. There's no judgment either way. I'm just saying it's open. You know. Uh, uh, one of the things they always say when you're studying is that yeah, that knowledge is not taken from books. Knowledge is taken from the people of knowledge. So an ilmu bit talaqi. Talaqi means you sit in front of someone who's attained it, you learn from them, you watch them, you observe them, you're ass you assume that they've done the same, right? And that gives the person something else. Hopefully, if they've done it for a good amount of time, hopefully it'll give them some level of wisdom and stuff like that that will make it so they don't ruin things. At least, at least the most basic minimum we're hoping for is that they don't go and ruin things when they go back to communities and stuff like that. And this is, you know, there was an understanding of like hierarchy. So people spent a long time with their teachers. We've said before, like Abu Hanifa spent 20 years with this shaykh. 2022, I think. Uh, and it's a long time, right? But there's a reason for it. He understood there's a reason for it. One of the students of Madik stayed with Madik for 20 years. He said, I learned the knowledge of the Muwatta in one year, and I learned from the Adab of Madik, his manners and his character, for the 19 years. And I wish I had learned adab and character for the whole 20 years. Like, I wish that's what I took from him. Yeah. Of course, this is a, a expression to indicate the importance of it. You know. uh, so may Allah help us. Allah give us good company. Number two, the hadith gives us insight into Rasulullah wasallam's quality as a universal model and an example of the perfect human being. So you just see it. You see, when you read the hadith, you feel like it's so beautiful. Imagine the Prophet them with these young, these young guys who came from their town or whatever else it is. And he's sitting with them in the masjid and he's teaching them and spending time with them and stuff. Uh, it's just beautiful, mashallah. Number three, it teaches, the, it teaches us the importance of learning the injunctions of the Sharia from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. From Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. I won't belabor this point. We've gone over this before. The short of it would be, if you want to understand the teachings of the religion today, you don't necessarily go straight to the hadith. You go to the hadith in light of the work of the scholars. Because what did they have? They went to the Prophet and they saw him and they understood Arabic and everything was fine, right? But we're detached from the Arabic, we're detached from the seen example of the Prophet And that's known through what the Sahaba did How did the companions do things? How did the Tabi'een do things? 
how did that how did that wind up in the understandings of the great imams and so on and so forth so if we want to understand the Quran the understand the sunnah then we have to go through all of these doors it's actually in some ways kind of similar that everything in the end in the in everything in Islam in the end is the Quran right so everything the Quran in the end all of these disciplines that we have in Islamic studies they came to serve the Quran the Sunnah is there, it helps us to understand the Qur'an. Arabic language is there, it helps us to understand the Qur'an. All of the books of fiqh, all of the works of aqidah, all of the works of, of logic, of, of, of biographies, of spirituality, everything is there so we can understand the Qur'an. But the endless ocean in the end is the Qur'an. Right? So uh, it's kind of similar. But you have to go through things through their proper doors. And, uh, you know, ta'amun kibar summa sigar. The, something that might be food for an adult can actually harm a baby, you know. So you have to take things step by step. It doesn't mean you have like. Sometimes people hear that and think like, "Oh, well, I thought we could just know the Prophet." Of course, you can know the Prophet them and you can know his family, and you can know all of these things. But you know, part of like it's having it's actually a kind of adab with the Prophet them Ya Rasulullah, I want to know you And I want to know you properly Not just based on what I think I, I want to know you in, in the context of Of what generation upon generation Upon generation of people have understood from you Sallallahu alayhi wa alayhi wa sallam Shaykh, you think you might share a remind, like a reflection at the end or anything? Shaykh Anist is here too, yeah? I know. Khalasar Majd al Shuyukh. Testing, testing, testing. Inshallah, <laughs> what a beautiful night. Testing, testing. There we go. Good? It's a beautiful night, isn't it? Inshallah. Alhamdulillah. Number four, it is best for a student to search for the most knowledgeable and intelligent scholar of the time. It should be borne in mind that the parents of these youths were the Sahaba of Rasulullah. These Sahaba met him, learned from him, and gained knowledge from him. Yet the young men did not confine themselves to learning from their parents. Instead, they went directly to the leader of all scholars, the crown of all prophets, and the most learned of all mankind, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Okay, so this is an interesting point too. Uh, as a general rule, of course, we try to benefit from the most knowledgeable. It's a general rule. Uh, the caveat that I would put on this, especially for students, is that sometimes it's okay to learn from people who are not as senior in your beginning levels 
so that you can actually get to a point where you can learn from people who are senior. Americans oftentimes, especially when we go overseas and stuff, Americans are sometimes very entitled. We think like we came, we deserve to study with the top scholars immediately. It's like you can't even speak Arabic yet and you think you have a right to sit with the top scholars, you know? So as a general rule, that's what we do though. Like if I'm gonna read something, sometimes people are like, oh, did you watch this or that on, on YouTube or like listen to this thing on such and such? And I'm like, no. <laughs> you know? And it's not out of disrespect to the person who they're talking about, it's just, you know, like if I'm gonna listen to something, I'm gonna listen to the most senior people and listen to the people that I can like really, really trust their knowledge and their wisdom and their experience and so on. Or if there's some other reason, then it's fine. But uh, anyways, they went to the Prophet Number five, Rasulullah specifically ordered the eldest of them to lead the Salat considering that they were all equal in knowledge that they had acquired from him. The eldest was therefore given preference. Had one of them been more knowledgeable than the other, he would have been given preference as knowledge is considered to be superior to age. It's a very important principle actually. So oftentimes, you know, we default to, not, to age, right? Because age is usually easier to figure out. Like who's the older person, who's the younger person, so on. And that's fine, and that's good. But the thing that actually takes priority over that is knowledge. And uh, Shaykh Abdul Fattah mentions this actually in, uh, in Islamic manners also, rahimahullah, that when you, like the priority in a gathering goes to the person who's mo most knowledgeable. Um, so for example, even if you're like greeting a group of people, you don't actually start with the right. You start with the most knowledgeable person and then you go. Right? You start at the right and then you go, right? But actually you start at the knowledgeable person, then you go from there in that order. Uh, why would you do this? Why does this matter? Right? It's important that we think about that. You know? like, why does this matter? Then after that, why does, it, why does it matter to give precedence to the older person? Okay. One of the reasons for that is because knowledge is, knowledge is the ultimate arbiter. Right? Like the prophets, they came to give us knowledge actually of how to live our lives and how to worship Allah and how to deal with people and the, the example of the Prophet them gives us so it's a it's a wealth of experience, right? And hopefully that knowledge will lead to wisdom. If it's if it's proper. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when he when he refers to the Prophet them in the Quran, he says, that the Prophet will teach them the book and he will teach them wisdom. They say the wisdom actually is the way of the Prophet. But maybe like people are equal in knowledge uh, Then what makes one have priority over the other is their age Because the hope is that if both of them have knowledge then the one who has more experience There's a little bit like the marination on that knowledge and it went a little bit further, you know So it's they have a little bit deeper insight because things like the 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 black and white question is the easy part The hard part is when it's not black and white. What are you going to do? And it's very rarely black and white, to be honest, you know. Black and white would be like, uh, when does, uh, you know, do you have to pray Maghrib in its time? Yes, you have to pray Maghrib in its time. But then someone comes to you and they're like, but I'm traveling and this is happening, or I'm sick, I'm in the hospital, and do I have to pray Maghrib exactly? Now it's getting a little bit different. Is it as black and white? Maybe it's not as black and white. So now this is where the knowledge and the experience and stuff like that becomes important. That's why one of the things that, like sometimes in theoretical knowledge, people who are very, like very, very good researchers, they're excellent, right? But I, I personally prefer when I see someone who's like really strong in their knowledge, but they have a little bit at least experience as a practitioner. 
because things change. Like the positions that you hold, some, some I've, I've even some shiuch, I've taken some of their classes and stuff. I got happy when I started to see him on TV. Not because he was on TV now, and I mean, it made me happy because I'm like, ah, oh, now he has to deal with real stuff. You know, like now he's really in the midst of it. You're gonna get all these calls and these issues and so on and so forth that you didn't hear before. It's gonna affect the way that you interpret it, how you deal with the situation, and so on and so forth. So hope you know, in the age does that, and experience does that, and wisdom does that. Um, you know, Subhanallah, like, yeah, it does that. It's hard to believe that I was an Imam in ICOI. Oh, it's coming close to 11 years ago now. It's 10 and a half years ago that I started at ICOI. And if some people maybe remember that, you're like, SubhanAllah, I can't believe that much. For me, I'm like, wow, I can't believe 10 years has passed. It's crazy. But 10 years is a big difference. Like, you know, may Allah protect all of us and help all of us. But I know for sure, like, there's so many things I look at them very differently today than I did 10 years ago. You know, and that's that's part of how we grow. And, you know, may Allah make help us to be protected from mis major mistakes in the course of our growth. Inshallah, Amin. So he gives the older one priority because they're all the same in their knowledge. They all came to the Prophet wasallam. they all stayed with him. So the older one will lead the Salah. The order order in society is important. You know, contrary to maybe some of the uh, trajectories of thought that are popular at certain times. Order is important. To know like, okay, this person's in charge. This is how things get done. This is how it's going to be. This is where responsibility lies. You know, uh, so he teaches them that. Sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Hadith number seven. Tirmidhi narrates in his Shama'il on the authority of Aisha radiallahu anha. Who had said, Rasulullah sallallahu alaihi wasallam never used to speak continuously without pausing the way you do. Instead, he used to speak clearly with frequent pauses in between so that those seated with him were able to remember what he had said. I'll say it again. Aisha radiallahu anha said, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam never used to speak continuously without pausing the way you do. Instead, he used to speak clearly with frequent pauses in between so that those seated with him were able to remember what he had said. <clears throat> he doesn't say much on that one It's pretty clear Speaking continuously without pausing in between Is liable to cause confusion amongst listeners Because they may not understand and remember the words Hadith number 8 Tirmidhi narrates in his shama'il On the authority of Anas Who had said the messenger of Allah Would repeat a word or sentence Three times so that it could be understood. So that it could be understood. It's a good translation, actually. They said a word and then in brackets or sentence. Because an kanima in Arabic isn't necessarily just a word. It can also be a sentence. Right? So like, what is kanima to tawheed? The kanima. What is the kanima? Someone says the kanima. What's the kanima? La ilaha illallah. Right? It's not one word. So... So they translated as a word or sentence three times so that it could be understood. He would repeat, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. In other words, the message should be clearly understood and firmly embedded in the mind of the listener 
This principle illustrates Rasulullah's perfect guidance and compassion to his followers in general and to his students in particular. This noble hadith shows that it behooves a teacher to proceed slowly and cautiously in his lesson. He should explain any matter energetically and should also repeat himself when necessary in order to be clearly understood. Is that clear? Put my coffee on the wrong side. Okay, hadith number nine. Mm. So hadith number nine and hadith number ten are Two of the longer hadiths in Imam Tirmidhi Shama'il We had studied the Shama'il if you remember We read the entirety of the Shama'il during the pandemic And then after that, I don't know, maybe a year ago We did a 40 hadith from the Shama'il When we used to sit on that side And uh, two of the narrations that were in there are, are these two that are here I'm prepping you because I don't really want to comment on them It would be best if we can just listen to them and uh, try to embrace them in all of their beauty because they're very beautiful. Tirmidhi narrates in his Shama'il on the authority of Hassan ibn Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu who said, I asked my uncle Hind ibn Abi Hala who was very good at describing features to describe Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam to me. He replied, Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was in a constant state of concern and always in thought. He was never at ease. Yeah. Yeah. Understand that appropriately. Not that he was like agitated or something, but he was filled with concern. He would remain silent for lengthy moments and did not speak unnecessarily. He always commenced his speech and ended it with the name of Allah. His speech, which was neither too lengthy nor too short, was concise and extremely meaningful, in the course of which he would often pause. He was neither stern nor was he looked down upon. Uh, I have to check this translation. Hmm. Yeah, no. Yeah, he was neither. He wasn't stern, nor was he. Uh, like he didn't humiliate people, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. ولا لا بن جافي ولا المهين. He wasn't ليس بن جافي ولا المهين. He didn't humiliate people. He didn't like ridicule them, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. He greatly appreciated the bounty of Allah subhanahu wa taala, irrespective of how minute it might be. He did not find fault with any bounty. He did not find fault with any food or drink, nor did he praise it excessively. The world and worldly matters did not anger him, but if the truth was trampled upon, nothing could stand in the way of his anger till he triumphed in support of it. He never got angry nor took revenge for personal motives. When he had to point to someone or something, he pointed with his entire palm. When he became surprised over any matter, he turned his palm downside up. 
When he spoke, he struck the inside of his, of his left thumb with the palm of his right hand. If he became angry with anyone, he would turn away completely from them. When he was pleased, he lowered his gaze. His laugh was mostly a smile. When he laughed, his teeth glittered like white hailstones. Sallallahu alayhi wa The next narration on the authority of Al-Hassan ibn Ali who said, and Hussein ibn Ali said, I asked my father, Ali ibn Abi Talib, about Rasulullah manner with those who were sitting with him, those in his majlis. He said, Rasulullah was always smiling, had an easygoing nature, and was soft-hearted. He was not stern and hard-hearted. He did not shout, was not obscene, did not find fault with anything, and did not joke excessively. He would display a lack of interest in those things which he did not like or did not approve of. He did not disappoint any person who hoped to receive something from him. That's a miracle in and of itself. Right? Like, think about it. That's a miracle of prophethood in and of itself. How impossible it is. He did not disappoint any person who hoped to receive something from him, nor did he refuse him totally. He himself abstained from three things, argumentation, excessive talking, and things which did not concern him. He saved the people from three things. He did not criticize anyone, he did not insult anyone, and he did not search for the faults of anyone. He only spoke that for which there was hope of reward. When he spoke, all those who were present lowered their heads. It was as if birds were sitting on them. They only spoke when he had stopped speaking. They did not speak all at once in his presence. When anyone from among them spoke, they remained silent until the person completed whatever he had to say. The one who spoke first would continue speaking until he had finished. He would join them in their laughter and their expression of surprise. He would tolerate the rudeness and incessant questioning of a stranger to such an extent that his sahaba would hope that a stranger would come and converse with him. He used to say to them, when you see a person in need, you should help and guide him. He never accepted any praise if it went beyond what he actually was. What it actually was. It might be better, but anyways. He did not interrupt the conversation of a person unless the latter went beyond the bounds or digressed, digressed from the truth. If anyone did this, Rasulullah would either stop him or walk away. Hmm. It suffices in itself. Hadith number 11. Timothy narrates in his Shama'ala on the authority of Ali radiallahu ta'ala anhu in his description of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi gathering, he said, he used to give his attention to each of those sitting with him. None among those who were sitting with him ever thought that the other was being given more attention. Another miracle. That is a miracle. How? How is that? I imagine you're in a gathering and everyone wants to be around Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi and everyone feels like they got everything. Maybe we see that. May we see that. May we be in the company of the Prophet and feel that feeling. Can you imagine feeling that feeling?
Bukhari narrates in Al-Adab al-Mufrad, Muslim and Nasa'i, also narrate in their respective books on the authority of Abu Rifa'i al-Adwi. He said, I came to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam while he was delivering a lecture. وَهُوَ يَخْتُبُ You can't necessarily assume that it was khutbah al-Jum'ah, but at the same time, that's the common khutbah. So, Allahu alam. Maybe he'll say in the, in the comments, we'll see. He says, I came to Rasulullah while he was delivering a lecture. I said, O Messenger of Allah, I am a stranger who has come to find out about my religion, as I do not know anything about it. Look at these people, right? They're so like sincere, so earnest. Earnest is a good word in English. I think we've kind of moved away from it, but it's a really good word, earnest, right? They're so like, they want to know their religion. So he came, he says, I came in the middle of his lecture. Prophet is giving a lecture. Person comes. He says, Ya Rasulullah, a strange person came to you to learn about his religion because I don't know anything about it. Imagine like the scenario, right? The Prophet turned, he says, the Prophet turned towards me, stopped his lecture, and then came to me. A chair was brought for him. I think it had legs made of steel. Rasulullah sat on the chair and began teaching some of what Allah Ta'ala had taught him. He then returned to complete his lecture. Amazing, huh? Completely stopped. Sat with this person. Okay, this is what you need to know. Doesn't necessarily have to be like a super long explanation, right? But the person said, I don't know anything. So Allah is one. Prophets, all of them worshipped Allah. They all called people to goodness. We believe in angels. They're a different creation. You know, they do what Allah tells them to do. There's revelation. Scripture, it came to these different prophets. It's all the same. It's all largely the same in its message. I'm the last of the prophets. So Allah, I send them. You know, it doesn't have to be super long, but he, he stopped. In his commentary of Sahih Muslim, Imam al we said, I think I just saw that this is translated now. Has anyone seen it? Sheikh Chad, Sheikh Honest, anyone? I think I saw something online that said that Nawawi's commentary on Muslim translated. Amazing. MashaAllah. That's a big, uh, big thing. MashaAllah. No, we said, uh, this hadith demonstrates Rasulullah humility, kindness, compassion, and accessibility to the Muslims. It also demonstrates that a seeker must be well-mannered when speaking or questioning a scholar. The hadith also teaches us that a person should hasten to answer a questioner and should give preference to more important matters. This companion may have asked about iman and its important fundamentals. The scholars are unanimous in their view that when a person comes inquiring about iman and the manner of embracing Islam, it is incumbent to answer his questions and to teach him immediately. Someone comes in this situation, to teach them immediately. Everything else stops. Subhanallah. The reason for Rasulullah sitting on a chair was to enable others to hear his words and to see his noble countenance. Shaykh Abdul Futah Abu Ghadda said, This hadith shows that it is permissible for a teacher to sit on a chair while teaching. Standing all the time is therefore not compulsory. <laughs> One of the cool things when you read commentaries on hadith is like They'll bring everything they can possibly bring from the hadith And you're like, well you didn't really need an evidence to say that, you know But it's more like, this is part of how you, you know, It's out of love, it's out of love for the hadith, it's out of love for the Prophet I'm going to take everything I possibly can from this Try to come up with as many lessons as possible Hadith number 13 
Şeyin ki benim Nemir 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 Ebi Nemir uh, said that he heard Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anh saying While we were sitting in the masjid a man on a camel entered seated his camel in the courtyard of the masjid and fastened it He then addressed them Which of you is Muhammad? At the time Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam was sitting among them leaning against something We said to the man this is Muhammad this person who is leaning. The man addressed Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saying, O son of Abdul Muttalib. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, I have heard you. Basically saying, like, I heard you, so say what you want. Right? The man said, O Muhammad, I'm going to pose some questions to you. I will be very harsh with you in my questioning, so do not get angry at me. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Ask whatever you desire. This hadith actually, it's, it's really remarkable. It's beautiful. If you, you wait till you get to the end, you see what, what happened. So I'm going to ask you these questions. Okay, fine. Ask what you want. He said, I ask you in the name of your sustainer and the sustainer of all who were before you. Did Allah send you as a messenger to all the people? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa said yes. He said, I ask you in the name of Allah. Did Allah command you that we should offer five prayers in a day? Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa replied, yes. He said, I ask you in the name of Allah, did Allah command you that we should fast in, the, in this month of the year, meaning Ramadan? The Prophet ﷺ replied, yes. He said, I ask you in the name of Allah, did Allah command you to take this charity, the zakat, from our rich and distribute it among our poor? This wording, by the way, is one of the reasons they say that the zakat should be distributed in the place that it's taken. Not sent to other places. The, the priority is to distribute it where it's taken because you take it from the rich and you give it to the poor. If you take it from the rich here and you give it to the poor somewhere else. But usually they say you have an exception for extreme circumstances, which usually that's what we're doing, right? Like when you send money to someone who's in the famine or something like that, it's because it's really extreme circumstance, and that's the exception. But the general rule is that you pay it locally. Rasulullah said, yes. The man said, I believe in what you have come with, and I will be your envoy to my people whom I left behind. My name is Dimam ibn Thalaba, the confederate of Banu Sa'd ibn Bakr. So why did he do this? Because he's not, he's speaking on behalf of all of these people, right? He's, he's the one who sent by his people. Go to this man, talk to him, see what the situation is. And if it's what we think it is, you declare your belief and all of our belief. So he goes, he's speaking on behalf of everyone, right? So why is he saying, I'm going to ask you these questions, I'm going to be severe in the way I'm asking you questions, don't get mad, right? Because <laughs> he needs to know exactly, exactly every single word, I need to know exactly what it is. Okay, this is what you've asked us to do. I believe in, I believe in you, and I'm the messenger of my people, we all believe in you too. It's amazing, right? Sheikh Abdul Fattah says, consider the questioner's intelligence, how beautifully he entered and introduced the questions which he posed to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa he asked him to take an oath in the name of Allah for the answers to his questions. He had full confidence in the truthfulness of Rasulullah When he had completed his questions and received the answers, he announced his Islam and informed the Prophet that he would be his envoy to his people who had sent him and who follow him. They had sent him to inquire about the authenticity of the Messenger who was inviting people to believe in what he had brought from Allah so that they could also believe in him. So they sent this man as a delegate solely because they had full confidence in the composure of his intellect his farsightedness and his true insight how right they were and how excellent he was this is why abdullah ibn abbas radiallahu anhum said we never heard of a delegate better than dimam 
Omar used to say, I never saw anyone better than Imam ibn Ta'laba in posing questions and being so precise in this regard. May Allah be pleased with him. It's a beautiful story, right? One of the things that's important to do as you're trying to study is uh, and try to understand the religion and study the religion is that a person has to layer their studies. Okay? So like for example, say you're studying the Maliki school, right? You go to Sheikh Fuad's class, you study the Maliki school, and you hear purification and prayer on the Maliki school. Even if you get like an ijazah and that, you don't really turn around and teach it right away. Unless it's a really extreme situation, you don't do that. You go to someone else, you study it again. You go to some other books, you review them, you read them. You want each piece of information that you got because it's that serious. Like if I'm going to tell someone, this makes your wudu sound or makes your wudu not sound. This, is, this makes your prayer valid, it makes your prayer not valid, so on and so forth. I don't want to have heard that once. I want that to be really... When he asked these things, in a sense, he heard it three or four times. He said, I'm going to ask you the question. He asked it in a particular... The, the question itself had emphasis. The answer had emphasis. You know, so it's as if he heard it like four or five times. But he can now take it to his people. It's absolutely clear. Right? So this is one of the things that we want to do as we learn. Because, of course, Islam is also vast. When you try to study Islam, you hear all these different things from all these different people and so on and so forth. So we want to try to layer the things that we learn and have like an understanding in our mind that okay this is something I'm pretty confident about this is something that I still need some research about this is something that I feel good about this is something that I feel strong about you know so on and so forth and don't just listen to everyone um, you know this, this this situation that we have online right now is a fitna it's really a fitna you know people come all the time and they're like did you hear this from this and that I saw this video I saw that video I'm like what is this video that video Right. All these random things people just watch online. You know, I heard this thing about Islam. I heard that thing about Islam. So like, go get your religion from someone you can trust and live it. That's the mandate. The mandate is not like listen to all these random people online. Some of it, so so much of it is like just posturing and and uh, you know, may Allah protect us. May Allah protect us. Hadith number. Fourteen. That's our time. Maybe we'll stop on this one, inshallah, after this one. Hadith number fourteen. Muslim narrates on the authority of Abu Ayyub radiallahu ta'ala anhu said a Bedouin approached Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam while he was on a journey. He took hold of the nose ring or reins of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa camel and said, O Rasulullah or O Muhammad, inform me of that which will draw me closer to paradise and take me further away from hell. <laughs> Look at these people. <laughs> like they're on a they're on a, a journey and the Prophet is going with his animal. And the guy walks up, grabs the reins of the animal, says, Ya Rasulullah, tell me something that's gonna bring me closer to paradise and make me further from hell. Oh, just like give me something right here, I'm gonna do it. Right? And this is also like they have they have like they, they didn't need huge quantities of knowledge because they just did it. Right? And they had some sense. They have some, some, they can see each other, they, they're in good community, so just give me the, the things I can do, and I'm going to do them, right? Rasulullah remained silent for a while, and then looked at his sahaba, out of surprise at the person's intelligent question. Yeah, that's a good question. He then said, he has certainly been blessed or guided. 
and like he mentioned comments on this person like this question this the the question this person has and the way that they asked this of like Allah gave them tawfiq actually to bring them to be able to ask this question in the way that they asked and he said uh, the Prophet sallallahu addressed the person and said what did you say and the man repeated what he said before okay someone get me closer to paradise get me away from it fine the Prophet sallallahu said you should worship Allah and not ascribe any partners to him you should establish the prayer, give the zakat, maintain good family relations, relations, and then he said at the end, "Da'an naqa." He said at the end, "Let go of my camel." <laughs> he said, "Establish the prayer, pay your zakat, maintain your good family relations. Now let go of my camel." <laughs> Still, there's a puwa to the Prophet is the one of the amazing things about him, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, is he's so gentle and so soft, and incredibly strong, at the same time. He said, he answered the question, deal with the situation. He's like, now let go of my camel, you know, and you know for sure he let go of the camel. It doesn't say in the narration, but you know. I think one of the important things to to think about with this with this answer is that many of us in our relationship with Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala, we're looking for uh, like some magic potion. You know, if I do this thing, if I get this thing, if I make this du'a, if I do, there's always like some magic potion type thing, you know, and that's the thing that's going to get me over the top. It might be that like certain people have certain things that are really good for them. They really like this person, if they did this thing, it would be really good for them, right? But the Prophet them when he's asked this question, his events is like, very general, right? Just believe in Allah, don't associate partners, establish your prayer. Just hold that prayer down, do it month after month, year after year, decade on decade, establish that prayer, you know, and pay your zakat and let go of the camel. So it's a very simple advice, you know, but it's very powerful. And there's a reason why the Prophet says that Islam is built on five things, and then he mentions the pillars, right? We call it the pillars for a reason. Because, you know, anytime we're like, okay, what do we do? How do we get reoriented in our relationship with Allah? I'm feeling like I'm not on the right way. I'm feeling a little bit agitated. I feel like there's things I need to fix in my relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is the main thing. Allah, no partners. Not for, you know, not other gods, not yourself. The biggest false god now is probably ourselves. Right? Like, we just want whatever we want, whatever we think. I think this should be this way. I think it should be that way. I think, you know, if, 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 if the only thing that mattered is whatever we think, then what do we need a prophet for? Uh, we just worship whatever I feel like. But he, Sallallahu gives us that guidance. I worship Allah, no partners. Part of what's indicated in that is follow the way of the Prophet, Sallallahu And pay, do, the, do the prayer. And, you know, mashallah, it's very simple but strong advice. Hello, Sunnah Allah, Sunnah Allah, Sayyidina Muhammad, Wa Alaihi Wasallam, Sunnah Muhammad.